nothing like Christmas really, is there? Um, I guess for some, that statement can mean Christmas is fantastic. It's one of the best times in the year. It's the end of the tough bit of pre-season and you can start to get ready for the next bit. It's time with family. It's time with friends. It's an opportunity to maybe get out of the normal trudge and routine of the day, the working week, all of those demands. It's an opportunity to just relax and have a great time. There's nothing like Christmas can mean something very different as well for other people. We mentioned earlier it can be a really tough time. It can be a time which is filled with difficulty, loneliness, sadness, memories from the past which are no longer shared today. Many of those things which really come to a poignant moment uh, at Christmas time. It's not that we all enjoy Christmas, but Christmas is still an amazing time. It's an incredible time. And I guess what we're going to be looking at this reading that Steve and Daryl read for us earlier, it, it's the first Christmas, but it really captures two of those moments. It captures joy and it captures sorrow. First, though, I want to do a quick myth buster on Christmas. First thing that I want to say is we don't actually know the date that Jesus was born. Uh, I know that we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, but we don't know that it's that date. Uh, we know that there were wise men or three kings or whatever we call them. We know that they arrived, uh, but we don't actually know that there were three we call them the three kings or the three wise men. We assume that there might have been three because there was three gifts. So that kind of makes sense, but we're not sure. What we do know was that it wasn't just three guys who rocked up uh, in Jerusalem before they arrived in Bethlehem by themselves. They were incredibly important, powerful people, and they would have arrived with a huge entourage, and it would have been a major event, even in a busy city like Jerusalem, for them to arrive. It was a really significant moment. We don't even know why we do celebrate the 25th of December. There was a, a Roman emperor called Aurelian, and he uh, celebrated, established the celebration of the feast of the birth of Sol Invictus, the unconquered son, on the 25th of December. That's interesting, isn't it? So like many other things, I guess, as the Christian faith grew during those early centuries following on from the birth of Jesus, many of the moments of celebration could well have been the, the kind of a time when we celebrate anyway, gradually becoming more and more a Christian celebration, a Christian feast, rather than a pagan feast. All that's interesting. I guess I wanted to mention that because a lot of people look at the message of the Bible and you think, well, it must be wrong because you celebrate the 25th. And when I look back in history, you haven't got it right and all of that kind of stuff. And I get that. I get that. And I understand that maybe if we just step back and look at it, maybe we can't be quite so sure of certain things. However, there is this that's amazing. Here we are, 2015, in Cass, celebrating Christmas. It's over 2,000 years since one event, and that event was no more than the birth of a poor peasant child. 
So no matter what we think about Christmas, one thing that we can say is that the birth of one insignificant person has completely changed this world. It is a remarkable thing. Even our calendar is set by the birth of this peasant baby. We talk about B.C., A.D., before Christ, Anno Domini. The whole of the calendar of the world is set up on this one event. And therefore, I think it's worthwhile, just for a few minutes, thinking about uh, this reading, this first Christmas time. I want to look at it in terms of the study of three kings. Now, you might say, you've already said that there weren't three kings, or there might not have been. So, what I actually want to think about it is in terms of three kingly powers. The first kingly power is the Magi who arrived. What were the Magi? Well, Magi is a derivative of magician. It's a kind of mystical, uh, wise man who was looking at all sorts of, in the ancient world, looking at all sorts of signs and indications and became the kind of person that indicated the things that a culture should do or the things that a ruler should do. And many kingly people would have relied on, a ma- on the magi in many cultures to decide what to do at various times in, in the year or in their reign. Magi were an incredibly powerful king-like reign. That's one. The second king is a king called Herod. We read about Herod. He was a king of the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. Kingship was established in Jerusalem. But what we do know is that Jerusalem, Judea, was not under their own rule at that time. It was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, like in many other situations, what they did was they placed figurehead kings in the role of leadership, but they didn't really have total power. What we see at the end of Jesus' life is the, the combination of the kingly rule of the Jewish people and the pagan rule of the Roman people come together to nail Jesus to a cross. That's one of the things that we see. There's this kind of mix of power going on. And we have King Herod. And then we have another king, a king that isn't immediately obvious when we read this uh, little account. We have a king which is a baby born in humble conditions in a stable. Study of three kings. First thing that we see is that the kings arrived, the magi arrived from the east. They followed a star. What do you think when you hear that? I guess most of us have this kind of this idea of this weird heavenly kind of being, this bright light that shone a light on the ground and they, they followed it along uh, as they traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles from where they lived to the pl- It wasn't like that. There was a moment which gave some kind of indication in the sky, some sort of astronomical event, whatever it was, which for them in their astronomical world, the ancient world that they lived in, gave them an indication that something significant had happened. What happened when they arrived? Well, they went into Jerusalem because they knew that that's where the the rule of that land was. They knew that the seat of power was in Jerusalem. What we do know was when they arrived, 
it caused a huge disturbance. It was incredibly unsettling. People were talking about their arrival, and then when King Herod heard about their arrival and heard what they were arriving for, he was really concerned, majorly concerned because these uh, wise men had arrived asking for the king. Well, come on, I'm king, aren't I? I'm the king. And yet what we find is that they have come to find Jesus. How do they know where to go? Because one of the things that we do know is that Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. I guess pretty much all of us probably know that from our, our, our historical awareness of the Christmas story, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Everybody knows that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If you go around the Holy Land, there's great big churches on every significant place. There's a great big church where Jesus was supposedly born uh, in Bethlehem. They arrived in Jerusalem. How did they know to go there? Well, verse uh, four, say, 4 and 5 say this. Herod called them together and all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. What was he asking? He was basically saying, look, we know our heritage, we know our history, we know that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, we have always been waiting for a kingly ruler to arrive. Where was he to be born? Where was this Messiah to be born? And they came back and they said, in Bethlehem, in Judea. It's not far, relatively short trip. And they traveled from Bethlehem to Judea. That's what they did. Have a look at King Herod. Verse 3 says, When King Herod heard the news of their arrival, he was disturbed. It's kind of straight out of the Game of Thrones storyline, really. It's all about power. It's about fear. When he heard that they'd arrived to find the ruler, he was terrified. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. That is just filled with subterfuge and scheming and planning. He had absolutely clear in his mind what he was going to do. Find out where the child is. Find out where he was born. I'll go and worship him. <laughs> I'll worship him with a dagger in my hand was effectively what he was saying. I'll go and kill off any possibility of the ruler taking over from me. And then there was the baby. Doesn't look much like a king. But when they arrived, verse 11, we read this. They came to the house. And they saw the child and his mother Mary... And they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's an interesting little word there. Uh, and here's another myth buster. Probably most of our idea of this Christmas story is you've got Mary and Joseph in the stable uh, and she has the baby and the shepherds come in uh, and 
10 minutes later, the wise men arrive uh, because they arrived almost around the same time and they all had a great time and then the story goes on from there. Yet Matthew doesn't describe Jesus as a baby here. See what he says? He says, that's where the child was. In actual fact, this event was around about two years after the birth of Jesus. What had actually happened is that Jesus had been born, the shepherds had come and had witnessed that immediate event at that moment, they'd settled, they'd stayed. And what we hear and what we understand is that, is that these wise men had seen the event and it had taken them time maybe to plan their journey, then maybe to make the journey and then to arrive. And when Herod finds out that they've arrived, he also finds out how long ago it was that you saw this star appear. And he did that so that he would understand how long ago was it that this baby was born and therefore how old is the child that is a threat to me. That's the reason why Matthew calls it a ch him a child rather than a baby. Kind of piecing together a little bit of a different perspective on the Christmas story but maybe taking ourselves back to actually what was going on. There's an amazing thing that they do. Two amazing things. First amazing thing is these incredibly powerful king-like figures bow before a two-year-old child. They bow and they worship him. That is just so far off our radar, isn't it? It's just not what we would expect. And yet that's precisely what Matthew recalls happened when these powerful people arrived and saw Jesus. They bowed in front of a two-year-old child. In other words, the king-like figures bow before somebody who doesn't look like a king. The whole story turns its head, turns on its head. It gives a completely different perspective, the unexpected. I guess for us, we're so used to it, because we know the story, that we're not shocked by it anymore. What they actually did was they worshipped him. Then they brought out gifts. This is where we get the three from. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Seems like nice gifts, but they actually had significance. They had meaning. Gold was an indication in the ancient world Gold was considered almost having mystical properties. Most of you, I guess, would know that the more you heat up gold, the more you can't get rid of it, you more, the more you improve it. The more you heat it, the more you burn out the impurities, the more be the gold becomes purer and purer. It doesn't disappear when you heat it like most other uh, elements. The gold becomes purer. Gold was considered mystical, but it was also considered kingly. So here's these powerful people coming and saying by their gift, we see you as kingly. Frankincense is a fascinating uh, ointment, gave off an amazing aroma, but in the ancient world it was known as a symbol of godness or deity. That's pretty remarkable. 
these men who had traveled however far, over whatever period of time, bow down in front of a two-year-old and say, we say that you are king of this world, but we also say that you are divine by the gifts that we give you. They sound great, those gifts, and then they give him myrrh. Myrrh was probably the most surprising of the gifts because myrrh was an embalming oil. It's what you use to embalm dead bodies. <laughs> it's a bit like arriving at a christening uh, and giving the baby a funeral plan. It, it's just not what you would do. Uh, and yet that, for some reason, is what they give to this child. It's a remarkable little insight. These kings come and they worship. They bring remarkable gifts. While the king who was the closest, the king who was actually the figurehead king over the Jewish people, responds with fear. His fear becomes so dramatic, actually, that uh, when he realizes that the Magi have traveled a different route and haven't come back and told him where Jesus was, what they actually do, what he actually does is he sent, sends his uh, military force into Bethlehem, a few miles away from Jerusalem, uh, and slays the young, young boys under two years old. It's depicted in all sorts of artwork over the centuries. Slaughter of the Innocents is one of the great uh, paintings of that particular event. Three that, if there were three, that we don't assume would be worshippers are contrasted with one who we would expect to be a worshipper who actually isn't. And the third king is the epitome of innocence. What an amazing little picture that we have there. I have a great privilege of being able to spend lots of time talking to people about faith and religion and other things as well. And one of the things that I hear most in our culture today, I think in lots of ways it carries some weight, is a criticism that one of the biggest problems of the world is religion. I get that. And yet what we actually see here is a contrast which I want to just think about for a few minutes. It seems to me that the greatest problem in the world is actually the desire for power. Uh, and that very often comes cloaked with religion. Yeah, absolutely, it comes cloaked with religion. And yet down through the centuries, it's actually the desire for power, which is the reason why there is so many difficulties in the world. Herod begins our perspective of just that kind of hatred. Caesars, Chairman Mao, Lenin. In actual fact, it is both religious and irreligious desires for power which cause the greatest challenges. In contrast, the foundations 
of the Christian faith start with an innocent little child? And you say, well, hang on a sec, what, what does he grow into? He grows into somebody who remains innocent. He grows into somebody who doesn't seek military power or power of force. In fact, he submits himself to all of those powers. And the life of Jesus is actually mapped out in humility and ultimately giving himself to those great powers of the world, it seems, and being nailed on a cross. You see, we can't have Christmas without Easter. We would never, never be remembering this today, 2,000 years later, if it wasn't for both of those events. Jesus is there presented by Matthew as a king. The king of earthly power, yes, with gold. But his kingship isn't one of military force. It seems to me that his kingship in this world is actually by billions of people who continue to say, I would consider Jesus to be king of my life. That's the kind of kingship that Jesus introduces. A kingship which still remains 2,000 years later. Frankincense? Deity? Godness? Really? Can we believe that? The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this. The whole of the Christian faith, I'll paraphrase it. The whole of the Christian faith, absolutely everything that I stand for, everything that I've spoken to you about, it stands or falls on one thing. It stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then you can forget everything that I've said. Go away and have a good life doing something else. It all stands on that moment, that single event. Jesus' deity? Actually, the myrrh becomes incredibly significant because it does speak of a death. And yet, finally, it speaks of a death which challenges and defeats the greatest power that we would ever know. Not a military power, not a political power, but the power that will overthrow every single one of us. Jesus defeats the power of death. Now that is a remarkable claim. It's a ridiculous claim. It's an insane claim, unless it's true. C.S. Lewis said, you can never really consider God, Jesus, just to be good. You can't think about Jesus as being just good. Because the things that he said and the things that he claimed are just so enormous, they're just so massive. He's either mad or he's very bad or he is who he claimed to be. He is God himself. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this, O death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? See, the kingship of Jesus is finally seen, not because he ascends a throne as a child, but because he ascends a throne on a cross, and then finally ascends a throne in heaven. It seems quite remarkable to me that Aurelian, the 
Caesar celebrated the unconquered son. In a real way, that's what Jesus claims to be, the unconquered son. He's not defeated. And that's why we would say and why we celebrate Christmas time and why we would uh, enjoy this time together because we're able to say that Christmas is the opportunity where we might, each one of us, have peace with God. We looked at it last week. It was the event where the shepherds hear uh, the declaration of the angels, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. What an amazing statement. 